Hello, this is the SkyTap Podcast. For those of you who are new to the show, my name is Noel Wurst. I'm one of the content gurus here at SkyTap, and I'm the host of this program. The SkyTap Podcast is a vendor sales pitch free podcast where we sit down with some of the best and brightest folks in the fields of DevOps and software delivery and in virtual training. While these are certainly two use cases of SkyTap, this program is our chance to not talk about ourselves, but instead focus on the amazing thoughts and perspectives of our guests, and they don't sales pitch to you either. One last plug, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or on SoundCloud. You just have to search for SkyTap Podcast on either of those and you'll find us. And if you like the show, maybe leave us a rating telling us that and the rest of the world how you feel. And if you don't like the show, maybe just tell one person or a pet. This week, we're not only talking about the world of virtual training and e-learning, we've got, for the first time ever, a double feature for you. I and some others from SkyTap recently attended the e-learning guild's DevLearn 2016 conference in Las Vegas. And as I often have the pleasure of doing, I spent the week interviewing some of the show's incredible speakers, two of which you'll hear on this episode, and one that you'll meet next week. But for today, we're sharing two conversations with you that I thought go really well together. The first person I got to meet at DevLearn 2016 was Megan Torrance. Megan is the founder of Torrance Learning and is a huge proponent of software delivery methodologies, not just for delivering software, but for specifically the delivery of training. As a big fan of Agile myself, I was interested in learning more about why Agile and e-learning are such a good fit and how long she's been using and prescribing Agile, what challenges people have adopting it, scaling it, and a host of other things. Megan's session was on this same topic and was outstanding, and I even wrote an article recapping it, along with some other thoughts of mine I had during the show. That'll be published uh, next week, the second week of December, for Learning Solutions Magazine, so look out for that as well. And in part two of this week's episode, I'm joined by SkyTap Principal Product Manager Seth Payne, Seth is one of my favorite SkyTappers. It was his first time being on the show, and you'll hear him again on next week's episode, and hopefully more episodes in the future as well. Seth and I sat down with Jennifer Hoffman ahead of her session, Engaging Modern Learners, When to Push and When to Pull. Jennifer was awesome, and I thought that her interview was a fitting next piece after Megan's, since we're talking about using agile methodologies to give ourselves as virtual trainers the agility to deliver training to individuals who are being asked to be just as agile, if not more so, and who expect training departments to be just as agile as ever. Everyone in today's business world is being asked to do everything faster, maybe even differently than they've done in the past, to not just deal with change, to embrace it and welcome it. And the way we deliver training on new software has to be up to these tasks. Nobody is standing still these days. Nobody is immune to the increasing pace of business and the rising expectations of the world around us, especially the management above us. So, let's get started. I've certainly talked enough. Here's how it's going to work. You're going to first hear our interview with Megan Torrance. It's going to lead right into our interview with Jennifer Hoffman, and then I'll be back at the very end to tidy up, remind everyone of how to find us, and to say farewell until next week. So, Thanks for joining us on another episode of the SkyTap Podcast.
So in your session here at DevLearn, one of the things in your abstract mentioned that um, training uh, is looking to deliver things on time, within budget, and what they need. And so I, was, I would love to know more about what, the, um, what that what is and who they are. Who, who is training, um, whose needs is, tra is training trying to meet today? Has that changed and is training aware for the most part that there's been a change there? You know, I, the, we have always been uh, seeking to meet the needs of our, our business partners and, and the people who, who commission training, right? And, and or actually nobody commissions training. They think they do, but they, they actually want performance improvement. Mm -hmm. They want, they want um, learners or performers on the job uh, to do something better or different or more. Um, the, so the, the what they need, um, the, the what uh, is, is expanding as we all learn more. Right, so we're, we're developing and delivering more than just uh, instructor-led training, more than just virtual training, more than just e-learning, um, and and all sorts of different things. And and agile project management can be used for all of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, and um, the need, though, and who defines the need? Uh, I think we're getting better. I hope we're getting better as an organ, as an industry, at looking at the learners' needs um, in addition to the business sponsors' needs. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so balancing that and knowing that that evolves is really tricky. Yeah, I've been in classes before where uh, someone will ask the class, uh, how do you know you're doing a good job? What are you measuring? And there's still a lot of that measuring the number of courses delivered, measuring the rating that they got for the, what was the, the course enjoyed? And it wasn't until the presenter started mentioning things like, are your support tickets going down? Um, can they resolve? Can support resolve a, um, an issue faster than they used to be able to? You know, is a product being sold more? Those kinds of things, and everyone was just furiously writing down those as these new benchmarks because they were still measuring things that tended to just matter to training and not to the organization as a whole. Well, and that gets down to kind of where where are you evaluating? And your level one evaluations, your Kirkpatrick level mm -hmm. ones, or did you like it? Was the coffee hot enough? Right. Um, and and has nothing to do with actual performance. Mm -hmm. um, so so that's what's interesting about the the intersection of agile project management and then XAPI, which mm -hmm. is allowing us to measure more about the learning experience and match that up with the performance experience. Because if all you have to measure with is SCORM, you're going to get quantity. Right hours um, and then you'll ask a, a quick survey afterwards because everybody expects you yeah. to, to ask that. Um, so that evaluation piece is, is really key. And quite frankly, if people can do the job right now, there's zero reason to train them. Right. Exactly. If they can figure it out, they, there's zero reason to yeah. do it. So how, why is Agile um, your organization's recommendation of, uh, of solving some of the challenges that training is facing today? What about, you know, Agile's been around for a long time, but you know, we saw in the in the room today only about a third of the room was currently doing it. Um, what are the the reasons that you're giving people for why Agile is a good choice for training specifically? Well, it's interesting that a third of the people in the room are doing it today because that's more than I've ever oh, really? seen. Yeah, wow. that's more than I've that's ever good. seen in a room. Um, and typically, this is a self-selected room of people who've been to my sessions in the past and okay. are coming back to to either ask the then what right. question or to, to share. Um, so it ends up being a little bit of a, a reunion too. Um, I think that this is catching on um, because um, in some cases organizations are seeing their software teams um, mm -hmm. and their, their software teams are um, powerful organizations Delivering within, faster and right? Faster. And, and they're, they, they are um, div divisions or functions within an organization that carries a lot of weight. Mm -hmm. They're using it, they're using it successfully. And so um, that makes adoption seem very logical, um, particularly when training is tied to a software um, environment. In other environments, it's actually a little bit harder sell 
uh, because where there isn't a strong um, internal IT department um, that's kind of leading the way. But people are seeing that um, they have to do more with less, or they feel like they have to do more th with less. Um, in some cases, they need to do less with the less, um, <laughs> and, 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 but definitely more strategically. Right. And so Agile is a way um, of, of figuring out what is the most important thing we ought to be doing. Mm -hmm. So for those who, those other two-thirds who are either just getting started or just getting started knowing what Agile even is, um, a lot of times the topic comes up of the importance of getting management or executive level buy-in early. And for something as uh, transformative, disruptive, whatever you want to call it, as agile, what are some of the ways to not just get the buy-in from the uh, the trainings, uh, the trainers themselves, but whoever it is that they report to, or other executives that maybe some funding is going to be needed, whether if it's for uh, more resources or an agile coach to come in, or for tools. What are some of the ways to convince management that this is the way to go too? I typically recommend that people start with um, a willing project sponsor and a willing team. Um, for a project that matters, but is not necessarily critical to okay. life and death of the organization. Now, okay. there are uh, there are people who will say that the critical ones are the ones you ought to have using Agile. Right. Um, it puts a lot of pressure yeah. and, and stress on. Um, and so what we try to do is use an iterative approach to implementing Agile itself. Mm -hmm. Take one project, uh, start to finish. It's really hard to kind of do Agile in the middle of a, an existing waterfall project. Mm -hmm. But uh, find something that is um, multidisciplinary uh, with willing people. And the thing about doing that, that beta test, that mm -hmm. first version, is that the willing people are more willing to um, give you feedback and to, to forgive your mistakes the first few times while you figure out what it is that you're doing. Because mm -hmm. everybody, you have to implement Agile um, in your own situation, your own context. If you right. do exactly what I do, it's not going to work in your right. organization. Um, then, as you do that success, you're both getting something out, delivering successfully, and, and building a reputation within the organization at the same time that you are cleaning up your act so that by the time you get to the people who are more reluctant, they're less reluctant and you're better at it. You've got a, like a much larger case study to, yeah. to present them with and then it worked with these two people. Yeah, so, right? It's right. more, more it's easier to attract bees with honey yeah. than, than vinegar. Right. So. Okay. And then last question for you is, you know, we talked about today that Agile has a lot to do with, uh, we talked about how it's not just um, being able to accommodate change, but welcoming it. Um, once you've set up that environment to really nurture your, an Agile project or an, an Agile organization, how do you maintain that environment? Because, you know, people leave the company, um, new demands come in that make that Agile project harder. Um, the, the, your entire uh, use case could change. How, how do you kind of maintain the environment that Agile needs to continue to grow and scale? Well, we make sure that we are continually tuning our own Agile processes and training new people coming in. So I have the benefit of, um, since I give workshops um, around Agile, um, and we do them at our office, we will make sure that all of our new team members come to an official Agile workshop. Um, in addition to getting, we have a, a self-paced, um, you know, self-study yep. internal version that we do. Um, and everybody's shadowing a lead. So it's easy when the rest of your project team is doing it. It's a little bit harder to maintain momentum if it's just a one person right. kind of thing. Um, but success breeds success. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this is, I have not seen an Agile project be unsuccessful because of Agile.
so you're giving a session later today on push-pull training, and while I read on your website, and I think I understand it, I wanted to first start off with just a kind of a, a definition of, of what that is and kind of how it came to be, why you recommend it, things like that. Sure. Right now, the industry is changing. The uh, 15 years ago, all I did was virtual classrooms, and everybody could live in their silos 15 years ago. But now you can't do that anymore. Everything's a blend. And also, we're expecting that our learners want to pull the information down on their own. I mean, whether it's live, whether it's self-paced, they're looking for it. So we need to create an environment in which they want to pull. Now, there's research being done. We expect that millennials will be all about online learning. And the reality is, is they're not. They would be if, if it was done well, if it was produced to the quality that they could have produced on their own, on their phone, in 10 minutes. But we're, we're not producing great training. What we need to do is create or transform from a push training environment where we tell people what to learn and when to learn it to a pull learning environment where there are still going to be formal events, but they're surrounded by content that our learners know, or they, know is there and that they want to reach out and grab and learn. So we want to almost become their internal learning Google, if I can call it that. Because why are they using our content instead of just going asking Google or asking their neighbor? So that's a challenge for us. I, everybody's always talking about millennial learners. And they're so difficult to please. So I've got clients that sit, sit around and have workshops about how to please millennials. And there was a big aha. One group came together. They did this whole workshop and created all the things that they thought that should, would appeal to their millennial group. And they said, you know, I'd like this too. I just never demanded it. This would be better learning for me too as a non-millennial. It's just I didn't know to demand it. So I'm not worried that we're creating this pull learning environment just for this one group. We're creating better learning for everybody and just upping the standards. So, uh, so I talk to a lot of uh, software companies, obviously, and what they're what they're talking to me about now is this transition from, you know, you'll, you'll hold a two to three to four day class, and they're talking about it in terms of chunking, yep. right? So they'll take a very complex subject, but they're finding that uh, that their learners want to just find the answer to a question so they can solve a problem, and so they kind of chunk things up in a way that's a little more consumable. How does that how does that kind of thought process fit into what to what you're talking about? Sure. Well, first of all, training is evolving. We're no longer event planners and order takers, but we're actually becoming what we've been trying to become for ages, which are truly learning consultants. And formal learning shouldn't go away. It's not going away. It shouldn't go away. But what I think is going to happen is building into the formal events, the moments of need where we're learning something new, we're teaching them about the tools that they can go out and find later on. So instead of the 200 pages of workbook or the all the, all the PowerPoint decks, we're saying, okay, here's an infographic, here's a video, here's a worksheet and a process. This is how you use this when you run into this problem back on the job. So I think that the role of training is going to be teaching people how to use the other tools we're making available to them in that particular moment of learning need. And that's one of the things we're going to be talking about a little bit later. There's five different moments of learning need. Some are formal. We need to have formal training. But we're going to, 
Blended Learning Now allows us to really give people the content they need when they need it, instead of hoping they remember a five-day boot camp. So um, we were talking a lot about availability, making it available, making it easy to find. Um, you also talk about how when you're making this training actually engaging and not just quick to consume or mm -hmm. easy to find, that it, it does require a lot. And you said that, it, or you say that it requires uh, a trio of emotional, intellectual, and environmental responses to training, mm -hmm. which sounds really hard to come by. So I was curious as to how you um, how you build that in. We, we talk a lot about building quality into software. Mm -hmm. How you, how do you build in those kinds of responses um, to make these classes uh, maybe far more engaging than these people are probably used to training being? And that's right. We're not used to training being engaging. Yeah. First of all, we need to define engagement. Mm -hmm. And you're, you've come from software. People, oh, well, virtual classrooms. I'll give you my Excel and you'll get to play with it and therefore training is engaging. Or you can click every two minutes to get to the next screen and then it's engaging. But really, engagement is more than just communication. It's more than just going through the content. That doesn't prove that we've learned and it doesn't, it doesn't in, ret help us retain. So what we need to do is figure out what are these engagement points. And so, so emotional means I, I'm connected to the content. It resonates with me. I can see from my adult learning perspective where I need to connect and why. Intellectual engagement means I'm actually learning it, it makes sense. So just because I want to learn something or I'm interested in the topic doesn't mean I'm actually going to learn the topic. Uh, motivation lends itself to it, but we go to these conferences all the time, and I might be the best speaker in the world, and you might love me, but tomorrow I might not remember a word I said. Think about the way you spend your spare time. You've recorded something on your Netflix account, and you take the time out, and you watch three episodes, and the next day, can you tell me what those three episodes were about? Often not, and we chose to spend our spare time watching something that we selected, but it wasn't intellectually engaging. Emotionally, we got there, but intellectually, it wasn't. Yeah, and then, thank you. And environment means, am I learning this in the right place at the right time? So right now, we're doing a podcast, and there's noise around, and there's this particular environment here, and we expect a certain quality, a, a certain energy. When we put people in a classroom, for example, a traditional classroom, the environment suggests we sit and we listen and we contribute when we're invited to contribute, and, and not really any other times. Right. What blended learning and modern learning is really letting us do is start to create more authentic learning environments. For example, everybody's very hot on mobile learning. You probably work with mobile learning all the time. And everybody's talking about mobile learning as a technology. I think of mobile learning as a place, as an environment. Because on my mobile device, I can watch a video. I can participate in a live WebEx session. I can take advantage, I could do a social learning. I could do all that stuff. I can also do that on my desktop. I can also do those things in a cl traditional classroom. Those are all different places. But if I expect my learners are going to be in a mobile environment, we take an event, there's going to be noise around them. We don't want them having to do very fine motor skill tasks. We want to keep things short. If they're in a 
if they were learning at their desk, we, we can, in, that environment is different. And think we can get to more authentic ways of teaching. The big thing about mobile is you can teach anything via mobile, but do you want to? Is it the right environment? For example, if I was teaching you how to program macros in Excel, which never come to me to learn that. But if I was trying to teach you how to do that, the most authentic environment would be at your desk in a virtual classroom, not in a face-to-face -face classroom. When you're not at your own computer doing your own work surrounded by your own environment, the most authentic place to do it is on your own desktop where you don't have to use a different mouse. You don't have to figure out different keystrokes. A mobile device, I might be able to deliver that content via a mobile device, but you're never going to program macros probably on your phone. So taking training and expecting to actually master that content on your phone is not an authentic way to teach or an authentic way to learn. So environment matters is, is what this comes down to. Just because we can teach something in a certain way or to a certain location doesn't mean we should. And just breaking down that we can learn on a mobile device, we can learn at our desk, we can learn in a classroom, or we can learn on a job, it's a very simple consideration that real, I think makes learning and training much more accessible. So I, I think it's interesting that, that you, uh, you brought up mobile because we talk to our customers and prospects and you know, all, mobile always comes up in the conversation. Uh, but when we dive a little deeper, um, we find out that, well, I'm not sure how they'd use it. Um, it's, you know, there's just not a lot of clarity. There's not a real vision as to, as to how it's going to be used. And so it's seen as using a technology just because it's there. Um, and so I, I, I certainly see that, that happening, right? There's certainly, um, uh, like in our case, you know, we, we work a lot of, uh, what you were saying, fine motor skills, right? So very technical. That's very difficult to do on, a, on an iPad, right, or on an iPhone. Um, and so how do, how do people, um, how would you encourage someone to kind of shift their thinking from seeing technology as a solution rather than as a means to, an, to a greater end? Well, first of all, there's going to be learners that no matter how you design or what environment you design for, they're going to take it on their phone. And at some point, modern learners are going to do what they need to do. The first thing we need to do is realize that not everybody needs the same amount of expertise in a topic. If we're going back to uh, macros in Excel, for example, the manager might need to know what the capabilities of programming in Excel can do. They might not need to know how to program in Excel. So for them, participating a little bit more remotely, if I might say, on a mobile device, might be an authentic or an OK environment for them. But if they needed to program, they should be at their desk. So. What we need to do is stop saying everything can run on everything, which is true. I mean, we could make everything work. This was designed for a desktop environment. The learning objectives at the desktop environment is at the end, you will be able to program a macro in Excel. If you opt to take this on a mobile device, the learning objective changes, that you'll be exposed to what can happen on a you, you can, you're exposed to the capabilities, but you will not have the opportunity to practice. When we started moving online, what we did was we took all this great content face-to-face -face and moved it into virtual classrooms and e-learning and whatever, and we didn't change any learning objectives. You will be able to program a macro in Excel. And we showed them how to do it, 
Maybe I turned it over to Seth and Seth got to practice, but the other 17 people in the class got to watch Seth. So one person got trained because training implies practice. It might not need to be at that moment, but there needs to be hands-on in order to receive any kind of mastery. So I'm kind of going in circles here. I'm hoping I'm answering your questions. Yeah, totally. No, you're doing great. Um, so you've got a, uh, an infographic on your website that we're going to have a link to on the podcast um, so that people can download that because it's really good. And it talks about uh, the five guiding principles in this uh, push-pull style mm -hmm. of learning. Um, we could probably talk way too long about each one of these, but just to kind of run through them, you know, one of them is uh, being able to support a wider range of learning experiences, um, training need to loosening control uh, and autonomy, um, which I'd love to know a little bit about why is that so hard for training to let go? Because this is, I've been going to these training conferences for a couple of years now, and every single one of them has multiple speakers saying you have to let go of this control. Um, supporting and enabling learners, we've kind of talked about that a little bit. Uh, focusing on performance, we got to on that a little bit. And then the last one was a new relationship between learning and development and the business. And that's another one that a lot of people are talking about to people that have never heard it before. And people are really realizing that it's not just about training, and training can't just deliver results for training. It's got to expand to the whole, the whole organization. Well, first of all, I want to give credit for these five principles to Jane Hart and, and modern workplace learning. These five principles are directly hurts. The idea of us becoming partners with the business. Traditionally, I've been in training a long time, we'd create a new software product, and when we're ready to roll it out, we'd call training. And training would create an event, and people would get trained. Uh, as we evolve, oh, and also, we were the first people to get cut anytime there was um, a layoff or something like that because we were seen as an overhead expense. And if we're overhead, they didn't need us in the first place. If, we, if our role evolves into becoming more partners with the business, we're embedding training in the flow of work, we can anticipate when people need to be trained. What's the moment of need? Is it new? Are they having a problem? Is the world burning around them? And how are they going to access that content? And if we're embedding ourselves in the workflow, and saying, uh, this is going to reduce calls to the help desk, or it's going to help us going through a difficult time, like layoffs and things like that. And we can prepare people, and it's not an event, but it's just a process that doesn't end. Then we're not overhead anymore. We're part of the business process. And we're part of the planning process, not just an afterthought. Oh, we should create 10 infographics. Well, that's a nice idea when I only have one week to train people. But if I was involved in the process all along, I might be able to identify points and maybe even improve the product along the way. Improve the process because I can see where the learning would be difficult or where people will fall down. We were teaching, think of like Expedia.com, the people that create software for travel agents. And they were moving from the old blue screen to a web-based platform. And that's still going on. People are still moving to the web. And just like you mentioned, your solution would have worked for them. One day, these travel agents around the world who did not all belong to the same company were going to come in, turn their computers on, and have to use a new system. I mean, that's just the way it was going to work. So how do we teach them? Well, we used the virtual classroom, and we used application sharing. Now, Traditionally, we would have taught them how to be travel agents. You know, this is how you put in a plane. This is how you put in the hotel. But we didn't need to teach them that. We just opened up application sharing and said, Seth, book me a ticket from Portland to Las Vegas. I'm going to DevLearn. And you know how to be a travel agent. 
you asked the same questions in the same order every time. And we all watched you and watched where you got stuck and then helped you. And then somebody else did the plane and somebody else did uh, the hotel or the car and then we made changes. And by training that way, we allowed them to figure out how the system worked, but we also figured out where the workflow didn't work anymore. Where it made sense from a systems perspective, but it didn't support the way people were working. And they, were actually, they actually had time to change the system in small ways just to improve the workflow. I mean, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. And it was by accident. You don't plan for that stuff. But we know how people learn. I don't necessarily know how to program a macro in Excel, but I can tell you where it's going to fall down in the learning process. So make it authentic. Teach people in the environment which they're going to use the skill. Don't just throw content out. And when there is a lot of content, teach them how to use that content when they're back on the job. I always thought, even 20 years ago, Windows first started coming out in all of our computers, that you guys are too young for that. We taught, we spent four days teaching people how to use Word, and we never opened the help facility. And even 20 years ago, Microsoft had a great help facility. I don't know, remember Clippy? Oh, yeah. As goofy as that was, it was fabulous. We never taught people how to do that in training, because we had to teach them how to format a table. But what if, I said, OK, I, needed to, I need to format a table, and this is the requirements. Go to the help facility and do it, and then tell me where it got difficult teaching them how to fish instead of hoping they remember everything. But that's a change for us. You talked about listening control. That means we're not the experts anymore. We have to have expertise, but we're not seen as the experts. That whole moving to a facilitator perspective, we have to keep the expertise because we have to be able to help. But teach people how to do it on their own is just so much better for the organization in the long run. And you get into social collaborative learning and things like that. Everybody wants to know about it, just like you said about mobile. Oh, I can't do that here. Can't do that here. It's got, what if they post the wrong thing? In a classroom, people answer questions wrong all the time, and that's OK. But the fact that it's written down scares people. We need moderation. We need to teach people that just because it shows up in a discussion board doesn't mean it's right. But we can't leave it there, either. We need to watch that, and that kind of stuff takes time. Blended learning takes time. But I think it's better. And I think we've been talking about it for a long time, chunking learning, all these things. Now we can actually do it. We have the tools to do it. Take the focus off the tools and focus on how learning really happens. Walking around the expo, there must have been 15 video training vendors. And next time I come here, there might be 15, and two of them will be the same. The tools, we focus so much on tools, and I know you're a tool provider, focus so much on tools. Find the right answer, and then figure out what tools fit that answer, instead of starting with the tool. So I, I think uh, what you said about um, learning about the process or product or whatever it is you're training on by, by observing how students are interacting with, with it. Uh, that's really fascinating to me because that's exactly what we do in terms of a product when we do a user test, right? We, we say, do this task and let, let's see what happens. So I can, I can see the tremendous value add that training could have on product development, business process, business goals, all that kind of stuff. What, what are your thoughts or would you have any recommendations on on how, how do, could you 
better create that loop between training, that feedback that, that you get so that uh, the business always gets that positive or that, that good feedback uh, and then reacts uh, to, to the feedback. This, it's a long, this is a long-term change. This is a big change. But some of the things we could do right away is not rely so heavily on level one evaluations and really look and see if people are learning. Now, evaluation in the true instructional design sense is supposed to be evaluating the effectiveness of the training product, not, not evaluating whether people have learned. The idea is if they haven't learned, then, we have, then the training product 90% of the time is it where it needs to be. There's always exceptions. So first, let's get rid of, we care if they like it or not, but I don't really care about that as much as the level two is if they learned it and then if it's usable enough to use back on the job. So I think we need to refocus our evaluation and measurement efforts. And also, we need to be brought to the table a little bit earlier. We don't do needs analysis in organizations. We, we come to conferences, we learn all about it, and then in two hours we figure out, okay, there's a real problem here, how do we fix it? But we don't really sit and investigate and observe. We need to start collecting data. What a, what a great use for social collaborative tools. So every time a help desk problem comes in or a new supervisor has trouble giving feedback, that problem, that concern is brought into a community. First, a coach can be there to help, help them solve that problem, get them through that. And then second, we can start looking at the business processes and see, did their training fall down in the first place? Did we not even discuss that? Is that something we didn't consider? So that's a real, I think, strong role for the social collaborative tools that we're hearing about. Everybody wants everything to be mobile. Everything wants to be social. But they don't know what to do with that. And they're worried because they can't measure it. And they can't control it. But if we use those social tools to collect data, teach people, and then improve the process, that's a way for us to get started and to jump on the trends that these managers want us to start using. And also a great use for mobile. OK, I'm on the road. And I need help. Let me put it into my social tool and get help. Let's use that data to improve processes and not worry about you know, what we're saying we're getting wrong. Easy for me to say, though. I live in a sure. world of best practices. <laughs> You know, pharma, a lot of heavily regulated industries, they're going to push back on that. And maybe they're not ready yet. And I think that's a shame. It's like we've got other industries that say you have to have a poll every five minutes in a virtual classroom to pr in order to get CEU credits. It has to be a poll. It has to be every five minutes because the accrediting bodies don't know what else to do. A lot of times they use that poll as proof of engagement. Yes. We, but had, it, we had a poll. It's not, but that's not engagement. But we're even teaching our trainers that that's a good thing. We're teaching them that that's best practice. So if you have to have a poll every five minutes, and this is down a different dirt road, but then at least use that poll to do the next conversation. Well, how many of you have had to create macros in Excel? Oh, OK, Seth, you have. Tell us where you had trouble. At least use it as a lead-in and not say, OK, we have to do another poll. Not make it something everybody's dreading because we set our students up when they know we hate it too. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode of the SkyTap podcast. Make sure and come back and visit us again next week where we will wrap up our coverage of DevLearn 2016. 
the best way to find out when that episode goes live is to subscribe to the show, which you can do by searching for SkyTap Podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud. As for where else you can find us, it's pretty much everywhere. You can find us at skytap.com, over on the blog. We publish a lot of really cool stuff there. We're on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook and everywhere else. So make sure and look us up to see more about what we do. And we will see you on next week's episode, hopefully. Have a great rest of the week, and thanks for listening.